Well, we have been discussing uh, through the last uh, several weeks from the book of Mark, what we call our series The King's Cross, Christ's journey towards the cross, never anything else intended. He was, uh, in each and every case, preparing for what he came to do, which was, in obedience to the Father, die in our place. We looked at the stories where he healed people, like the paralytic, where he taught amazing things that profoundly affected people about the love of God and the mercy of God. We saw him enter Jerusalem as a king, and a week later, less than a week later, hang on a cross as the suffering servant. And then those who were gathered last Sunday were here when we celebrated this resurrection. It's a glorious day. It is the center point of our faith and our faith story. But there is a question. What difference does it make for us as individuals and as a church that Jesus is alive? Do we just wait another year to celebrate Easter again and remember those stories? Or should it affect our everyday lives? And what we see as God's job for us as a church and our identity as a church. We are going to study the book of Acts because we want answers to that question. What does it mean that Jesus is alive? What does it mean that he didn't stay in the grave? And we're going to find out some very interesting things from this story. Now today, actually, we're going to cover a number of verses. I don't want you to get too paranoid about that because it is a story and it flows well. But we're actually going to go through both one chapter 1 and chapter 2 to see what's happening as this uh, journey has started for the church. We had the first eight verses read. And what you find is Jesus spent 40 days with the disciples. He was eating and drinking with them. One account says, while he was eating with them, this conversation happened. Do you realize what that means? What it was like for those disciples? They just took meals with Jesus. They were with him. He was teaching them about his kingdom. What a, no wonder they were so affected. No wonder when people said, oh, he didn't really raise from the dead. They knew he was alive. But as was their want, after he's back alive, they get back to the same conversation they had before he went to Jerusalem. Okay, is now the time? Is your kingdom coming now? Do we get to have our places of prominence now? That was still on their hearts. The same thing that they were asking before. They were thinking, well, we didn't understand that you're going to die and come back to life. But now that we see that's happened, now it must be your expectation to throw off the Romans, put us back up since you are the king in the line of David. And Jesus answered them basically in verse 7. He said, it's not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority. In other words, I'm not going to tell you exactly no, but I'm going to tell you, you won't know, you can't know, you don't even need to know when I'm going to come back and set up my kingdom. But here's what you need to know. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the utter ends of the earth. So disciples, listen to me, Jesus says. Don't worry about the political kingdom and the power of authority. Worry about this. You wait, and just as I promised, and as I was speaking to you, I'm sending my Holy Spirit who will live in you. And then what's going to happen? What happens when the Holy Spirit comes? We are going to get power. Hey, they've been looking for power for three years. This is good news to them. They wanted power. But what did they want power for? They wanted power to rule and to reign and to be top dog. They wanted to be on Jesus' left and right. They wanted power to push the Romans back. And Jesus said, you're going to have power. But that power is so that you can be witnesses. 
I think they're still scratching their heads. Is that good? Who wants to be a witness? Did we sign up for that? Is that like really important? Do good things happen when you're a witness? I'm not sure that was their agenda. It was indeed God's agenda. They would receive power. They would be witnesses. And I'm telling you, the part about it being not just for Jerusalem and Judea, but Samaria and under the uttermost parts, I know they didn't get that. I know that it took Peter several more lessons to understand that this uh, exciting news that we call the gospel was for everyone, not just for the Jews. Then verse 9, it says that Jesus went back to heaven. Now these same men who had been with him for 40 days and had had meals with him and heard his teaching and asked their questions, they saw him in physical bodily form go to heaven. And angel said, and he's going to come back just like that. He is now fully God and fully man forever and ever and ever. And the one you saw go, you're going to see him come again. Well, the disciples have some time to kill because they're waiting for the Holy Spirit. And so the rest of chapter 1 defines them deciding they need to replace Judas. And so they go through a process. They said, we need a witness who is there for the whole time we were with Jesus. From his baptism with John to the time when he ascended, we saw him go in bodily form. Of 120 of us, which one qualifies for that? They picked a couple. They drew lots. Not because they were afraid to make decisions exactly, but they knew Jesus had chosen the 12, and they wanted Jesus to choose this one. And so that's what they were doing while they were waiting. Now chapter 2, and it would be great if you had your Bibles open, and if you don't have one, we actually have some in the pews there. Uh, We want to see what happened next. Chapter 2, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Not only them, they were together, these disciples, but also a lot of people came to Jerusalem for Pentecost. Suddenly a sound like a blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them, all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. So just as Jesus had promised, just as he described to them, even though they didn't understand, it happened just as he said it would. And the Holy Spirit came. Guys, this is a really, really important part of the whole story. They did not want Jesus to leave. And even before he died, they were just terrified that he was going to leave them. And he said, actually, it's good that I'm leaving. Because if I didn't leave, the Holy Spirit wouldn't come. But when I leave, when I'm released from this, the Holy Spirit's going to come. And guys, this is going to be a good thing. Because the Holy Spirit's going to live in you. And be there to point out to you who I am and what I'm about and to help you in your relationship with me. This is going to be a good thing. Well, they experienced it in a big way this day. The wind blew. There was noise. There was flames. No one knows exactly what was there. This is sort of language trying to help us understand something supernatural happened and the Holy Spirit came. But it wasn't just this quiet little thing in the house because all these people were gathered in the city of Jerusalem and there was such a ruckus that it drew a crowd. Let's read verse 5. Now they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews, from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment, because each one of them heard them, the disciples, speaking in his own language. Now let's just remember, not very many weeks before, seven weeks before, six weeks before, the disciples were terrified. They were hiding. They were afraid of the Jews. They were afraid of what they saw happen to Jesus on the cross happening to them. 
And then they were 40 days with Jesus. But they're still in behind closed doors because Jesus said, wait for the Holy Spirit. And they're having a secretive thing. Now all of a sudden the whole town is gathering around and attention has been drawn to them. And the question is, would they say, oh my word, what are we going to do? Someone please calm these guys down. Can we sneak out of town quietly? What should we do? And uh, their past had been a history of fear. Their very recent past had been a history of denial. Let's not acknowledge Jesus. Let's not talk about him because that gets people really angry. He causes a lot of trouble, that guy. Let's see if we can be quiet. But something changed in the life of those disciples. And that something was the fact that the spirit of the living God was in them. They weren't just on their own anymore. And so... We're going to find out what happens to Peter. But in essence, he's got this crowd, and it's a large crowd. And he's going to start speaking to them. But I just want us to think for a minute, what's it like to talk to people when you know you're on a sort of a different page than they are? And you want to persuade them to change their minds about something. Do you know how hard that is? I mean, some of you guys perhaps can relate to this. If you've known friends who drive Chevrolet pickups... And they've had four or five or ten of those things. And someone decides, a neighbor, hey, you know what? I think your next pickup should be a Ford. That's going to be a big conversation. That's going to take a lot of time. Why would I drive a Ford? I am a Chevy man. We know how that goes. Let's put it in this perspective. What if, just for example, you were a voting registered Republican. And you go to a family reunion. And a niece is there who decides it is her duty to persuade you to vote Democrat in the next election. So she starts this conversation. How much work does she have to persuade you to change your political views and your party and your vote? It's a big deal, isn't it? To get someone to change. Especially if it's something that relates to your identity. Who you really are. And the more it relates to your identity, the harder it is to change. And Peter's about to speak to these Jews who were deeply rooted in their historic identity as Jews. Their expectation of what it meant to be a, uh, in the line of King David. And he's about to tell them a story that says you guys have made some really big mistakes and you need to consider a total change in your identity. So this is a big ask. When we send people to minister to Muslims... People to share the truth of the gospel, who Jesus is and what he did. Do you realize what we're asking of a Muslim? You just think if a Muslim had walked in here this morning and said, could I have five minutes of your time, Pastor? I just want to see if I can persuade your church to become Islamic this morning. That would be a pretty amazing thing, wouldn't it? But honestly, we go and live among Muslims. We send missionaries there because of the truth of the gospel and because of the reality of the hope that God has provided in Christ. But we have to understand, wow, when we have that conversation, when we start that relationship, we're asking a lot when we ask somebody to change the direction they've been going and to go in such a different direction. But this is what Peter is going to get into. And so uh, in chapter 2, we find out that all these people are gathered and there's big debates. There's mention that there's people here from about 15 different countries, Jews from every nation, and they're hearing uh, some message in their own tongue, which has them very befuddled. And then verse 14, then it says, And Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and addressed the crowd. Raised his voice, courageously speaking and preaching, not afraid at this point. And it basically says, Fellow Jews and all who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These men are not drunk, as you suppose. Some people wondered what it was, but some said they must be drunk because this is crazy. 
It's only nine in the morning, he argues. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. So here, I just want you to catch this. Peter stands up. He commands silence and attention. Listen carefully, he says. Something special is happening, and I want you to see what it is. But he so wisely starts with their prophet Joel. He knew these Jewish people would uh, give him some attention if he could draw their thoughts and their thinking back to one of their prophets. He started from where they were. He didn't start with a confrontation. He started with a point of commonality. He believed in the prophet Joel, and they believed in the prophet Joel. So he starts the conversation by saying, let me tell you something. You think that this is happening, but Joel prophesied hundreds of years ago that the Spirit would be poured out on the people of God. And what you see happening today is exactly what Joel said would happen. This is really an uh, insightful thing for us. If you think you want to engage somebody and you want them to hear the gospel from you, it's a great thing to find out where they are. And to start where they are, not just where you are. And that's exactly what Peter did in this case. I like it that the eleven were standing together. It wasn't just Peter. They were united and they were risking it all together. I like that he spoke with a loud voice because it demonstrates that he had a confidence that came from the Holy Spirit that wasn't there weeks before. And then I love that he started with this connection with them in the book of Joel, showing them that he could relate Again, when we uh, minister cross-culturally, for instance, uh, having gone and worked among people that we call animus, that's people that believe in nature, and they know there's a God, they just don't know who he is, and they have no idea how to appease him. But when we start with people like that, we start with the creation story, because they see that in creation there's an uh, obvious controller and designer that's a part of that. And so we start there, and we talk and persuade them. If we start with a Muslim ministry, we often start with the life of Abraham. Because you know what? Muslims and Jews and Christians all agree to a lot of things about Abraham. And so you start with some common ground, and then you go from there. What do you guys do? If you want to share the gospel with some family member or co-worker or neighbor, does it occur to you to start with listening and tuning into their world and their struggles and their issues and finding out what are their questions What do they want to know? Um, Perhaps it's a matter that they do have an interest in spiritual things. Perhaps they're trying to sort out what suffering means and how to cope with it. Perhaps they're just trying to find meaning in life. Start with a point of connection, not a point of confrontation, and see what God does. Well, then we go on after he uh, had explained about Joel, verse 22. Now, just because he started without confrontation doesn't mean Peter's not going to get there. Men of Israel... Listen to this. Now he's getting in their face a little bit. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. Now remember, he's in Jerusalem. And this is a, you know, it's like Pittsburgh. It's not really a big city. It's really a big small town. And everybody knows everything that's going on. And there's no doubt that they knew all these stories or many of the stories about Jesus and about raising Lazarus from the dead and the people that he healed right there in the temple and all the teaching he did. The week between when he came in on a donkey and they were treating him as king and before they hung him on a cross, he was teaching every day in the temple. These people knew who Peter was talking about. And he said, you know, Jesus... 
Um, when he was among you, God allowed him to do all these miracles so that he could validate that he was really sent from God. You guys know that. Now remember, they had celebrated him as king one day, and then some of them had stood with the chief priests before Pilate and said, crucify him five days later. And so this word Peter was speaking was getting to them. This Jesus we're going to talk about, you know the one, the one that did all those miracles, and you know the people, you probably saw some yourself, maybe you saw Lazarus after he was raised from the dead, maybe you saw that guy that was always paralyzed after he wasn't paralyzed, maybe you even knew the blind man who isn't blind anymore, you know the one I'm talking about. It happened in our town, it happened in our time, that Jesus is the one I'm talking about. So he has their full attention, and they've been hearing mumblings too about Jesus. After he died, what happened? says verse 23, this man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. Now, if I want to make friends and influence people and try to be non-confrontational, I'm not going to talk like this, okay? He's turning the heat up on these guys. He said, you know, Jesus did these miracles to prove he was God. And then, now this was by the foreknowledge and by the actual work of God. In other words, God was sovereignly at work in this. As we said about Jesus, nobody took his life. He laid it down. He raised it up again. But nonetheless, the facts are that the Jews played a key role in that. And that's what he says. You guys, you did use the Romans, but you Jews killed Jesus. You killed the one that God showed you to be his special anointed one. You killed him. That's what happened. So now there's thousands of people gathered. And here's these 12 disciples and perhaps as many as 100 or more others that were followers of theirs. And Peter's speaking with a loud voice. And he says, Jesus, we're talking about Jesus. You know, the one you killed. That's who we're talking about. And so he's gone from starting with common ground to setting the tone of, there's something you need to deal with about Jesus. Verse 24. But God... The one you killed? But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. In essence, Peter has just preached the gospel. Jesus came, became a man, lived a sinless life. By the miracles he did, he showed that he was a son of God. And then you guys crucified him, but now God has raised him from the dead. And then he circles back into another story from their history. He starts talking about King David. And he says, you know, you were thinking when the Messiah came, to be honest, he should have said, and I was thinking so too, he would just be a political king and he would deliver us politically and economically and give us our pride back and take away our shame. That's what we were all thinking. But that one, basically, God has raised from the dead and it was his intention that he die and it was his intention that he would be raised again. And he goes back to David and said, you know, David talked about one that would sit on his throne that would not see... Um, corruption of his body. In other words, he's not going to stay in the tomb and become dust. He said, now we actually have David's tomb here with us. Everybody knows David actually did go dust to dust. But he was talking about one who would come, who would not see that corruption of his body. He was talking about Jesus. And then he goes on to say, and also he's talking about one who would go and sit on the throne with God the Father. He said, guess what? David is still in the tomb. And when he said somebody would go and sit on the throne, he wasn't talking about himself. 
He was talking about that one who would follow. So the Jews are listening, right? They're hearing this. Okay, Joel, we understand. Yes, he did say that people, that spirit would be poured out. And okay, David, he did say that the body would not be corrupted. He did say that the one that would follow as his heir would rule and sit with God forever and ever. So he has their attention again, but he's just told them that gospel again. And so let's go to verse 40 and see what he says. Well, first of all, let's go back to 36. After he gave them the discussion of David, he says, Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. In other words, you guys are on the wrong side of this story. Because you thought you were doing God a favor when you killed Jesus. And you let the high priest talk you into that. But God is on the other side. God was for Jesus. Jesus was God's man. God has raised him from the dead. So like I said, he didn't start with confrontation, but he's into confrontation now. And guess what, gang? There's times for us too. I love that we can minister to people with the love of Christ, and we should. We should have the peace of Christ which shows in our relationships. But there's a time when we have to say hard things like, yes, Jesus is the only way. Yes, hell is real. There are spiritual realities that we have to own up to. We need to get into the depth of a conversation because people understand we care for them and we understand them and we're taking them on a journey. But we have to say tough things too. We have to be willing to do that. And certainly Peter was willing to say those tough things. Well, look at verse 37. This is what happens when the Holy Spirit's at work. When the people heard this, they heard that they had crucified Jesus and God had raised him from the dead, they were cut to the heart. Now, Picture a minute yourself in that situation. You're a Jew living in Jerusalem. And one week you're celebrating that maybe this Jesus is the Messiah. And then you get all worked up and you're there saying crucify him. And it's a brutal crucifixion. And now someone's telling you you were wrong. You were on the wrong side against God. You actually worked against the purposes of God. You actually killed God's anointed one. So it says they were cut to the heart. That's what happens when the Holy Spirit's at work in people. And they said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And this is exactly where we want to see God bring people. To the place where they realize they are separated from God. They are enemies of God. They have not obeyed God. They have not sought God. They have not appeased or pleased God. They are doing things their own way. And when by the Holy Spirit they realize that and they come to us and say, What can I do? I find myself an enemy of God. And there's an answer to that question. Because God has made a gracious provision for us and for these people. And so Peter says, Peter replied, verse 38, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off and for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words, he warned them and pleaded with them, Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Well, it turns out Peter, Peter's going to make a preacher after all because it says, with many other words. <laughs> That's the part of our venue that we kind of love and get addicted to, thinking that with many more words we can sometimes corral people and convince people. But actually what we see here is God, by his Holy Spirit, was doing a work in their hearts. And Peter did his part. He shared the gospel. He told them about Christ. And then he did all he could to persuade. It says that he basically warned them and pleaded with them. He really wanted them to respond. But he also gave them this incredible hope. You might think that because you did such a horrible thing, nailing Jesus to the cross, that there's no hope for you. But the truth is, if you will turn and believe, 
Turn and repent and believe in this work that Jesus did and understand he did that for you and for his love for you. You can have the same Holy Spirit, the living Spirit of God in you, just like you see us this morning, just like we experience. And so even though you've got a real crisis on your hands now because you're an enemy of God, there is an incredible solution in Christ. And so he had shared the gospel and the question is, what's going to happen? Are they going to chase him out of town? Are they going to say, you can't talk to us like that. Who are you, Peter? You're a country bumpkin fisherman from Galilee. Get out of here. That's not what they said. Because the Spirit of God was at work. Look what happened. Those who accepted his message were baptized. And about 3,000 were added to their number that day. Now, 3,000, they didn't have an electric speaking system. Peter really did have to raise his voice for that many people to hear what he was talking about, about Jesus. And he was sharing with that large crowd that could have turned into a riot at any moment. But by the power of the Holy Spirit, he shared the truth of the gospel. And that many people said, oh, I want to be right with God. I can't believe we killed Jesus. I can't believe it. The Son of God. You're right, Peter. You're right. What do we do? Repent and believe, and by being baptized, show that you believe and want to follow this one, Jesus. And so that many people were added to their number that day. That was a glorious day. That was a game changer. That was what we call the birth of the church. Now, there's a couple of things I want us to see about this that apply to us as well. You see, they were looking for a political kingdom. All the time they were with Jesus, they wanted to come in authority. They wanted to be on his right and left hand and have those positions. Even after he comes back from the dead, they're still asking, is now the time you're going to make things a kingdom? No, what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit. Power is going to come on you, and you're going to be my witnesses. Okay, we'll, we'll do that. We'll go there. They become his witnesses when the Holy Spirit's in them. And all of a sudden, the kingdom and the power that they had wanted for three years started to work through them. It just didn't look like what they expected. They expected a political kingdom. And instead, right as a miraculous thing before their eyes, God birthed the church. God brought people from spiritual death to life. People who had no hope came to have full hope because of the forgiveness of their sins purchased by the blood of Christ. It was a game changer. I'm telling you, this changed everything for those disciples. Now, they didn't understand everything. And we're going to go through quite a bit of Acts to see how many times they had to have discussions to sort themselves out. But we need to understand. Once this happened, they realized the game was totally different. And it was game on. It was, okay, now we see what the kingdom looks like. Jesus talked all those years about that. But now we see the church is his plan. To put his spirit in the church. And as these people came to faith, they started meeting together to worship. They stayed with the apostles to hear teaching. They were going house to house to pray and to have meals together. And there was such an outpouring of love for one another that people were going and selling things to make sure everybody's need was met. It was a miraculous birth of a community of believers. And that was exactly what God was doing. Now, let me fast forward to Christ Church. Uh, God has given us that same Holy Spirit that was in Peter and the 12 and the 120 and the 3,000 on the day of Pentecost. The very same living God lives in us, those of us who have repented and believed in Christ by the grace and mercy of God. And so what are we to do? Are we to look around and say, how can we get some power and influence? How can I use God to accomplish my agenda? 
That's what the disciples were prone to do. But do you understand how profound it is when you get overwhelmed realizing, wait a minute, God has an agenda and it's bigger than me. But it means he invites me into it. He invites us as Christ church to be used to be witnesses in this Pittsburgh area. Do you realize as we sit here this Sunday morning, less than 10% of people in the greater Pittsburgh area are going to go to church today. Over 90% of your friends and neighbors and family members have turned their back or are keeping some distance from God. And those of us that have the gospel, this story that Peter told, we have to understand that is the power of God unto salvation. Are we just going to say, well, that's nice that we have that, but of course every church has that. It's in our paperwork somewhere, the gospel. But what's really important is, are we going to do this or that? Or how are we going to solve this problem or that problem? Oh, may the Spirit of God help us to be so overwhelmed with the truth that Jesus is alive and the understanding that his call for us is to be about building his kingdom by treasuring the gospel and sharing the gospel and seeing people respond in faith and come to life and then hanging out with them and loving them and sacrificing for them and teaching them so that yet more people can hear the gospel. I shared this story once before. My wife and I uh, were in a small group Bible study uh, just two years ago with a couple who were uh, Catholics or not practicing Catholics, but they came from a Catholic background. And they had moved to Pittsburgh from Buffalo. And this couple didn't go to church for five years. And interestingly, they told us the church they went to for 15 years before that, the priest had gotten where he could have a service, started at about 50 minutes, and he got it down to where he could have a service in less than 20 minutes. They were in and out of that place, and they thought that's how church should be. But for some reason, after five years in the Pittsburgh area, they decided they needed some kind of community. They weren't finding any connection with people. So they decided to go to church. And they looked in the newspaper, and here was a story of this church that was just going to start. And so they said, well, let's go there. Knew nothing about it, didn't know what they were getting into. And they came to this little church out in New Brighton called Soma, a new church that First Presbyterian Church in Beaver was starting. And they came week after week, and, they were, and we shared meals with them and got together. We got them in a small group, and we're studying the Word. And I'm telling you, It was amazing because this couple had such a hunger to have peace with God. And we decided, wisely of course, you know, we're going to share the gospel with him. We're going to take time to go through a whole gospel. It'll take us probably a year. And we're doing this gospel study week after week. And they're so hungry, they're saying, now wait a minute. You guys have something we don't have. What's the deal? And we thought we could wait until we got to the end of the gospel to finish the story and see if they wanted to become Christians. At some point, Sue and I said, we just have to have those guys over. We just have to do the deal. We have to let them receive the gift of God that we have. They're so hungry for it. It's amazing. And so we had them come to our house, and we shared the gospel. They said, yes, yes, that's what we want, yes. And they prayed to receive this gift of God and to express their faith in God. And they came to newness in life. And I just want to tell you, there are so many people that you know that God might be stirring their heart right now that have that spiritual hunger, that desire to get reconciled with God, to have newness of life in Him. And as a church, we have some things to sort out. I know we like to say we're in transition, etc., etc. But we have to understand God has given us the gospel. And He's given us the Holy Spirit. And He's given us a platform and a location and connections in this community so that we can proclaim the gospel. May our hearts burn with the Holy Spirit. Say, oh God, use us again. Use us still. Maybe may we participate in the sharing of the gospel. Let's pray. Father, I do thank you for your word. And I thank you for the fact that you always planned to start your church. And you planned from the foundations of the earth 
that those of us sitting in this room this morning would be part of that work. Thank you for saving us. Thank you that someone came to us with the gospel. And I ask, Father, that you would just kindle afresh the desire in our heart as a church and as a fellowship to share the gospel, to proclaim, as Peter did, who Jesus is and the opportunity we have to repent and believe in him. We do ask that you would help us as a church to have strong and healthy fellowship, to be like those early disciples who went from house to house, who loved each other. They would come to have some disagreements, but they worked it out because the Holy Spirit was in them. May that be our testimony as well, Father, for your kingdom and for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.